0: Hi guys and welcome to the Research Zone podcast, the podcast where we aim to make sense of youth mental health research. Each week we will talk to a different researcher to learn about their research project, discussing the why, what, where, when and how of their research and most importantly how this can benefit us as young people. All the relevant links will be in the show notes so please do check them out if you're interested in today's topic. Without further ado let's meet today's guest. Hi guys, I'm Lizzie and welcome to another episode of the Research Zone podcast. Today I'm joined by Essie. Essie, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you research? Thanks, Lizzie. So I'm Essie Reading.
1: I'm a professor in developmental psychopathology at University College London. And broadly, I research uh, why some children are more vulnerable to developing mental health and, and behavioral problems than others. Uh, And the specific areas that our group focuses on is developmental risk for antisocial behaviour. So why some children are more likely to have antisocial behaviour disorders than others. We also look at the impact of childhood maltreatment on brain development in our group. And childhood maltreatment is one of the the sort of big uh, risk factors for developing mental health problems. And we are also really, really interested in trying to understand how individual differences in how people process information or emotions may impact uh, their social interactions and may in, in, impact their risk for mental health problems. So we're really focused in our, particularly in new projects that we have starting in our groups in trying to provide a more sort of nuanced understanding of how the way children and young people see the world may impact their relationships with other people, how other people react to them, what how they interpret other people's reactions to them, how those sorts of interplays between the individual and their social environment might actually then make some people more resilient uh, and other people more vulnerable to developing mental health problems.
0: Brilliant. That sounds so interesting. It sounds like you're researching a lot of different things. Um, so what made you want to research in this area? Why do you think it's important
1: I think what was really striking to me when I was doing my degree and and subsequently when I was doing a job as a research assistant where I did a lot of psychological testing in prisons was that there was just huge variability between individuals who came from the same circumstances in their outcomes. You know, some seemed much more resilient than others, even though they had seemingly quite similar environmental circumstances. So this suggested to me that, There are biologically driven individual differences in vulnerability. And some people are more vulnerable to anxiety. Some people may be more vulnerable to developing uh, antisocial behaviors. Of course, no one is born with a fixed set of traits. So the environment is really, really important as well. But the environment doesn't have a uniform effect on everybody. So that fascinated me this idea of trying to dig a bit deeper and find out what might be the differences in individuals constitution, if you like, that might make some people more vulnerable and some people more resilient. And then as I use different methods, I use genetically sensitive study designs that will help us pass about you know, biological and environmental influences. I use neuroimaging. I also did studies that used qualitative measurements of family environment. Increasingly, I started to think that we had this funny way of studying this phenomena where we often either focus on the individual or we focus on the environment. But we don't have a very sophisticated way of, of trying to understand how the two relate to each other. So we might measure behavior and, and how environmental risk moderates it, but we're we not usually measuring what underlies that behavior at the same time. And that's really what our new project, which is starting in January, is trying to get at. We are, we're measuring individual differences in how people regulate their emotions how young people perceive emotions. Some may perceive neutral faces as threatening, while others might perceive them as benign. And there are big individual differences also in how people are able to interpret their bodily states, which are really important for us as we think about whether the situation feels threatening, for instance, or not. So we're trying to measure all these different ways in which individuals may process important social cues from their environment and, and, and the impact of those cues on the individual and then also measure these individuals' social environments so how they relate to their friends how lonely they may feel and and what I want to do in a longitudinal study design together with my my colleagues and, and others is to try and understand how these individual biases in emotion processing may impact how relationship forms and then how in turn the relationships will further impact the emotion processing and then we have a, a sort of a trial intervention where we try and see whether addressing those information processing biases and helping people relate them to, to sort of social problems might prevent emergence of mental health problems in in adolescence so that's kind of where our research is at at the moment.
0: That sounds absolutely fascinating and so many different strands that you've got going on. Um, so how you mentioned a few different things there, but how do you usually go about doing your studies and do you usually involve young people in them?
1: There are different ways depending on what we do. So if we genetically kind of informative studies such as twin studies, these are big cohorts. So these are studies that, uh, where people have been recruited often from a very early age And then they've been followed up and there's a big study team in in the case of the twin study that I'm involved in. I'm not the person leading the study. Uh, The person leading the study is Estatalia Ely at King's College uh, London. And before her, it was Robert uh, Plowman. So they recruited this big sample. They keep the people involved and either online or in person, test the people from time to time. So there is longitudinal data. And then a number of other researchers who obviously have to be kind of vetted in terms of ethics, have access access to this this data and collaborate on publishing on, on them. But if we do studies where we measure more intensively, you know, information processing biases, for instance, or try and map social structures within classrooms, we basically Go to schools, for example. We have good collaborations with a number of schools. We try and work around, obviously, the school schedule. So whatever we do is not disruptive to the students' education. And then we we give the young people, children young people, and their families information about their study, and then they can choose to take part. Uh, and obviously, it's entirely voluntary. We do have, for our current projects, for instance, a young people's advisory panel. And this has been consulted even as we were planning our grant. So we've involved the young people in in discussing how we might best frame the research questions, how we can ensure that they are relevant for young people. And we also, in, in addition to having people who advise us how to put together the research and give us feedback, give us advice, give us their opinions about it, we also have a wider study steering committee where we have young people represented. And we have plans as the study kicks off to involve young people who are interested in doing this sort of work to help in facilitating the intervention and also to help put together communications about the study findings in different media formats. And they're usually more savvy than I am, or my colleagues are in doing it in interesting ways. And of course, everybody is paid for their work and their participation. And in, in fact, in our most recent grant, we also have a young person as a co-investigator on the grant. So she's a named co-investigator. So this is it's really important. And I think it didn't used to be the norm that people who were participants in research were also involved in constructing the research. So this is a relatively new phenomenon that this has become the norm and for instance the earlier studies that I did did not involve these sorts of young people's uh, consultations. I, I hope we were still very sensitive to the needs for the young people and we obviously ensured that every participation was voluntary. We still communicated with schools and parents to make sure that it's done nicely but what I have been really excited about is now that it's become a norm it's just amazing I think how much we have As researchers got out of it, and I hope the young people have too. So I think it's been a nice sort of two way interaction. And I think so many things that we do are actually done in a much more interesting way because we've had the insight and input from young young people in planning how to frame it.
0: Definitely. And it's so great to hear that you've had such a positive experience involving young people. Bit of an additional question here, but what kind of benefits do you think having young people on the panel brings to the project?
1: Well, first of all, I mean, they are obviously much cooler than (laughs) I am or my colleagues are. So they are able to think about ways in which we can explain our research that seem relevant rather than something weird that some odd professors at a university do. For instance, when we were, were planning the project that is starting in January, we had really strong steer from the young people that we should... Talk about the project in terms of creating ways in which people can promote mental well-being. They can promote uh, resilience, and for them, that was really, really important. They said, you know, it's good to talk about, of course, mental health, and we'll be we'll be sort of honest about that. But at the same time, in order for it not to be stigmatizing, and in in order for it to be positive and empowering, then the kind of the language that we use is really, really important. And the young people have been extremely brilliant in, in advising us in that. And then they often also have very good ideas of how you might communicate research findings or how you might, uh, what you might include when you explain the research in a way that just makes it more concrete, more accessible, more relevant. And I think that if you are someone who's worked in research for, or many years, I'm nearly 20 years in my case, you can sort of lose the ability to see how it seems to other people because you're so deeply embedded in it. So it's really, really helpful to have these insights into, well, if you say it in that way, people are just not going to get it. Or if you present the same thing in a different way, then it'll immediately make sense to the people.
0: That's great and I know that's something that as a young person in research we talk a lot about language in terms of like trying to make things accessible and understandable to everyone. So you mentioned that you've been in research for over 20 years which is so amazing. not not (laughs) Not quite, not quite, nearly 20 years then. So what interesting findings have there been for you from your research over the course of that time? There
1: are quite a few but I might just pick a couple of examples. So one of the findings in very early in my research, in my PhD research career, was that children who have different types of antisocial behaviour seem to have a different origin for the antisocial behaviour and look very different in terms of how they process emotion. So there's a subgroup of children who have early emerging behavioural problems and who also seem to lack empathy for other people. And for those individuals, their antisocial behavior seems quite strongly heritable. Now, that doesn't mean that they are genetically destined to become antisocial, but it means that they they appear to have a stronger biological vulnerability for, for developing antisocial traits. And you can imagine that if you have difficulty empathizing with other people, that is a big risk factor for developing antisocial behavior. Then there seems to be another group of children who are more impulsive in their antisocial behaviour, who have difficulties in regulating their emotions. And for those children, the antisocial behaviour seems to be more environmental in origin. And we found this out by doing comparing identical and non-identical twins in each group, which gives us the estimate of the relative importance of genetic and environmental factors. And for the group with the predominantly uh, environmental influences, they have the capacity to empathize, but they just have difficulty in sometimes kind of controlling their anger or planning planning ahead. And we've then followed these sorts of children also in studies that have used experimental methods or in studies where we've used neuroimaging and have also shown that there is There are real differences in how these two different groups of children process information. So the group who lacks empathy or has has lower levels of empathy, they really find it sort of difficult to resonate with other people's distress. And when we look at their brain function, when they view faces of other people looking fearful, for instance, they don't get the normal emotional response in brain regions such as the amygdala which is very important for processing emotionally salient information as typically developing children do so it seems that the, the kind of the ability to resonate with other people's experience is blunted in these children and that probably explains the sort of it helps in part explain the lack of empathy in this group for the other group we see a very different pattern where they s- seem to have typical responses to kind of stimulate that in in gender's emotional resonance. But if they see threatening information, they may, may have sort of heightened reaction to that threatening information. So that's, to me, that's quite interesting because it suggests to me that you might need to have somewhat different approaches with the two groups because they have different origins for their antisocial behavior and they also have different ways in viewing the world around them. So that's kind of a, that's an interesting finding and it has contributed to diagnostic criteria being changed for children with conduct problems. This is what we call antisocial behavior in children and this is ongoing research, we still need to understand a lot more. We need to understand what are things that work for both groups of people and what are the kinds of things that we mean may need to tailor to help their specific needs. And then the other research that has been led by Amy McCrory, who, who I work with very closely, has been looking at the consequences of childhood maltreatment. So children who experience and witness family violence or, or emotional abuse or in some cases neglect. And what we seeing these children is that a number of areas of information processing, they look different from their peers who did not experience maltreatment. For instance, their brains are much more reactive to threatening stimuli. So they've got this exaggerated amygdala response to angry faces, for instance. They don't process reward information typically. And they also have some uh, difficulties with what we call autobiographical memory. So they don't remember things in such a rich detail as their peers who haven't experienced maltreatment. Treatment. And we think that we've called these sort of brain processing differences latent vulnerabilities. So we think that they are entirely understandable adaptations to an environment that is not typical, but where it perhaps pays to pay attention to a threatening face because that might make you safer. And those sorts of adaptations are understandable in that environment, but then they may later on make you more vulnerable to developing mental health problems because when you go out to the wider world, where people don't as a rule act aggressively towards you, if you then process social information in a way that that's how you interpret their intentions, you may end up uh, in social situations that are conflictual, for instance, where you find it hard to elicit social support over time. It's a kind of bleak picture where individuals who've already had a very hard start then may behave in, in ways and interpret social cues in ways that then mean that even later on in life, they may have more difficulty in eliciting social support, more difficulty trusting people entirely understandably. So again, we are trying to use this research to educate teachers, to educate carers, to have a sort of a trauma-informed approach and to try and understand what has happened to the child and why they may react in particular ways, but also trying to advocate for better support for the people who work with uh, children and young people who experience trauma, because it can be very, very challenging until you may be seeing sort of positive changes when someone someone has mental health and behavioural difficulties following trauma. And I think that the people uh, who work with these children and young people also need support so that they can keep, and I think it's, it's so important to try and better understand individuals as active agents in their own environments, because if we don't get a better understanding of that, then we basically cannot provide appropriate support to both the children and those around them. I think that the really, really big thing that both the strand of research about development of antisocial behaviour and also the maltreatment that we've done, the really big really big thing that both Eamon and I have taken out of that research is that if we really want to help people we need to understand their social ecologies but within that we need to understand the individual's own role in creating and maintaining those social ecologies and I think it's a difficult task but it's a very interesting one.
0: Definitely and for people listening who maybe don't know what is a social ecology? So I think of social ecology as a set of the individual's social
1: relationships. So what support they have around them, you know, what positive interactions they have, what might be the negative interactions they have, how supported they feel or how lonely they feel, for instance. So it it may be that someone's social ecology, they feel like this is very sparse. I don't feel very supported. I feel very alone. So it really is the kind of the social world around us, both the immediate one, your immediate family, your closest friends, but also the wider kind of social world that we have to encounter in our daily lives. You know, your place of study, for instance, your place place of work. And I think what's also fascinating is that often those kind of relationship models and, and functioning that we learn from our home environments then also get uh, get brought into that wider world and can mean that we can either more successfully or less successfully negotiate the various challenges that each of us face every day when we meet various different people some of whom are very easy to get on with and others who are less easy to get on with
0: definitely and that sounds so well it's so important for everyone isn't it social ecologies and who you've got around you what do you think is next in this area of research
1: I think the next challenge, if we are really to bring together the the study of how the individuals process the world around them and, and the kind of the social environment, we really need to work hard to improve our way of measuring various things. So for instance, the various cognitive or emotion processing constructs that we're interested in, such as emotion regulation or Emotion processing biases—you know whether you see a neutral face as threatening or not, and so forth. At the moment, we don't have hugely sensitive and reliable measures of these. The tradition of psychology that is experimental was traditionally interested in how the humans process some information on average, or how the brains react on average, and it wasn't calibrated to sensitively measure differences between individuals. But if we want to understand resilience, or we want to understand risk for developing Mental health problems. We really need to understand individual differences. There's a lot of work to be done to develop ways of scientifically measuring these constructs in a way that is sensitive. We have tools at the moment, but they are relatively blunt. So that that's somewhere where we need a lot of work. And I think we also need to think about more creative ways of measuring social environment. You know, we've uh, relied on questionnaires. But now we're getting with the new technologies, you know, we're getting these what's called ecological momentary assessments where people get little snippets of, you know, how are you feeling today? How are you feeling at that point of the day? That could be interesting. And I think it'd be interesting if we thought about how we can do that for sort of social relationships and how fluid they are, how often they are conflictual. And I know that there is some work going on already, but again, I think more could be done. So if we want to get this intricate understanding of individuals as active agents in their own environments or what I like to call in my jargon embedded brains or how your brain is in your social environment then I think we need to work a lot harder to get the measurement of all the things that we're interested to be more sensitive because the information we can gain from these studies is only as good as the, the kind of the sensitivity of the measures that we use.
0: That makes total sense. And it's great to see how technology can like advance these things, because I've seen loads of projects now using like really cool tech and like wearable watches and stuff to gather information. So it's just really exciting to see where it goes.
1: it is. But it also, of course, then presents all sorts of ethical issues that we need to consider alongside it, you know, regarding privacy and how the information is used. and, And those are really, really important Things to consider. And I think another area, you know, great that we have these cool devices, but there, I think there's another completely untapped potential, which is, and this is, I'm, I'm really looking forward to discussing this with the young people who are participating in our study, which is that are the things that we're measuring actually the things that are experienced as being most relevant for, for the people themselves? So again, if we think about social environments, you know, people have probably hitting roughly on the right mark as to what are the kind of the interesting and important things to look at. But again, if we try and think about how we get things to be more sensitive, there may be certain aspects of measuring social relationships, for instance, that are really, really important for young people, but I wouldn't know about because I'm not a young person anymore. So I think that that's a sort of an interesting thing that we should think about as well, not just think, okay, we have these existing measures, how can we make them better? But also think, is there something that we've missed out on that would actually be really, really important information to add.
0: Definitely. And that's where the voice of the young people is so important, isn't it? Um, so my final question is, where can people get involved and find out more about you and your research? So in terms of the kind of the
1: actual studies, when we recruit for the studies, they are often this is often done via via schools because general communities, because we need to ensure that the samples are representative. So we it's not often sort of getting touch and and be but it's more we go to schools who we collaborate with, for instance, and there are particular year groups that we see and then we because we need to ensure that this is representative of the population kind of in general. In terms of the young people roles, we will be going via sort of established places like Anna Freud Center for Children and Families have a young people's panel. And these are usually channels via which we recruit. But those particular places are interested in hearing from young people. And there are other places like the Mac Pinman Foundation is doing very good work. And I think that so if young people want to be involved in these sorts of projects, I think that there are a number of, of sort of places where they can where they can get in touch. We ourselves have gone via those channels to sort of recruit people for the studies. But of course, if someone is interested in research, you know, I'm, I'm my email is in public domain, you know, people can drop a line and I do, even though it might take me a while, I usually try and if people have questions, I do try and drop a line and, and so at least point them to the right resources. And then when we start doing the project, we haven't started yet, we will obviously generate websites and other resources, which will then communicate about any opportunities for participation and any sort of activities that we do. So we are hoping that we will reach some new young people via those ways as well. And there will be different ways of us doing stuff so it would be lovely to hear from people but I would also encourage people to just generally keep an eye out because I think more and more researchers are working very closely with young people and I think that there are opportunities and
0: is there anything else you'd like to add before we end one thing that has I found really really sort of heartening is that
1: we have a new PhD program at UCL funded by the Wellcome Trust it's the only mental health science PhD program in the whole country And the people who run it, Professor John Royce is is the person who runs it at UCL and and has has a team of people with him. They, from the start, sort of stipulated that it would be very good if some of the students were also students who had lived experience of, of mental health issues, either themselves or within their families. And I know that the program has recruited students with lived experience who now are becoming trained researchers who will then go on to conduct research in this area so that I think is a really really welcome development and I think that it's great if young people can take part in these research projects and contribute to them but also get exposure to how research is done it's a really interesting career and and obviously the more people we have doing research who have good ideas who have insights into the areas that they're researching I think is it can only be good for the field
0: definitely and I totally agree thank you so much for talking to me today thank you so much for listening we really hope you got something from today's conversation and some nuggets of wisdom you can utilize to manage your own mental health this is a podcast made by young people for young people so if you liked it then please do follow us on socials and let us know about any future topics you would like to see we hope you have a wonderful week and most importantly take care of yourself Thank